We are back in Romans chapter 3. Once again today, hi and welcome. This is Graceful Truth with our teacher and pastor Steve Converse. Guilty as charged. That's our series. Stick around and join us. Hi there, and once again, welcome to today's broadcast of Graceful Truth with our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse, from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We're back in Romans chapter 3 today, series called Guilty as Charged, taking a look at the amazing grace that God extends to us, even though we are guilty as charged. So what is that guilt that we carry, and what does God do with grace to change it all? Join us and find out. Here's Pastor Steve. You turn over in your Bibles to Romans, Romans chapter 3 this morning. Guilty as charged. We're looking at, at chapter or verse part 4 of this series, Guilty as Charged. We've been looking at these verses in Romans chapter 3. And uh, I was reading a couple messages on this text last week, and I found one by Ray Stedman, who used to pastor a church down Peninsula Bible Church. Wonderful man of God, has since gone to be with the Lord, but had a wonderful teaching ministry there. Actually, Charles Swindoll started his ministry there as a, as a youth or college pastor, I think, there with Ray Stedman years ago. Um, but uh, in, in one of his uh, messages, I just thought it was so interesting because he, he, he titled it, Peel or Paul? That was the title of his message. And I thought, what in the world is this talking about, Peel or Paul? And I just want to share a section of it from you as a way of introduction this morning because I can, it, it speaks to the text that we're going to be looking at. Um, he says, I have a quotation that I'd like to share with you. It was not written by Norman Vincent Peale, but it does represent, I think, something of the school of thought he represents. Norman Vincent Peale is the Robert Schuller of, of secular thought and a very positive thinking individual. Um, he says, uh, it is from an article that appeared in the San Francisco Chronicle, this is obviously years ago. It was called The Art of Being Yourself in the column, Words to Live By. And he quoted the article, and I want to read the article for you. Here's what it said. The art of being yourself at your best is the art of unfolding your personality into the man you want to be. By the grace of God, you are what you are. Glory in your selfhood. Accept yourself. But go on from there. Champion the right to be yourself. Dare to be different. And set your own pattern. Live your own life. And follow your own star. Respect yourself. You have the right to be here. And you have an important work to do. Don't stand in your own shadow. Get your little self out of the way so that your big self can stride forward. Make the most of yourself by fanning the tiny spark of possibility within you into the flame of achievement. Create the kind of self you will be happy to live with all of your life. Be gentle to yourself. Learn to love yourself, to forgive yourself. For only as we have the right attitude toward ourselves 
can we have the right attitude toward others? Now, pieces of that sounds rather appealing. If I had to say what they appeal to, they probably appeal more to our flesh than our spirit. But parts of what I just read are true. But I think that when we stop and we think of that kind of mentality, that is the kind of mentality of the society in which we live. And when you place those words, and this was where he got Peel or Paul, alongside of the Apostle Paul's words out of Romans, specifically, specifically chapter 3, it's like night and day. There's a big difference. And so in his message, and that's all we're going to read of his message, but in his message, he appeals to his people. Are you going to listen to Peel, Norman Vincent Peel, or are you going to listen to the Apostle Paul? So with that in mind, let's read our text for this morning, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, or beginning in verse 9. Romans 3, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In the paths, in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we've been looking at this text now for several weeks, and you're probably eager for me to get on. I understand that. But we, we want to make sure that we understand what Paul is saying here. It would be so easy just to kind of break this up into two little points or three little points and skip on to chapter 4. Jump down to verse 21 and then to chapter 4. But I think there's so much here that we would be doing an injustice to the Word of God to just simply skip over and and breeze over this because this is an area in which we all struggle. You know, the one thing that I don't think that I've uh, done yet, and we're going to be looking at this next week a little bit, but you notice there in verse 9, it says, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Are under sin. And up to this point, I don't know if I've defined sin for you. What is sin? Because it's, it's key to our understanding this whole theology of total depravity, this whole thing that Paul is sharing with us, that there's nobody good. What is sin? If you ask the, the average Christian, what is sin? They would say, Probably missing the mark. Okay, they've been taught that in Sunday school class. Um, It's missing the standard. It's something that we do that displeases God. That would probably be the vast amount of definitions that you would get from people if you just asked them in the average church today. And I would say there's an element of truth in all that. That word... Sin in the original language does mean to miss the mark. The question is, whose mark are we missing? I gave you an illustration weeks ago about us all going down to Pier 39 and standing on Pier 39 and trying to jump to Alcatraz. And I stated that none of us would make it. We would all fall in the water at some point. 
not one of you, no matter how long you trained, no matter how hard you trained, no matter who trained you, no matter how athletic you are, you would never jump from Pier 39 all the way to the island of Alcatraz. It would be impossible. Some of you may jump a little further than others. And what I want to say is that's kind of where this illustration breaks down when it relates to our own goodness or our own sinfulness. Because in our logical, humanistic thinking, I've heard it taught in Sunday school classes before that, you know, well, you know, the teacher goes up and he draws a line across the top and that's God's standard. He's holy. Can any of you reach God's standard? No. The children say, no, no, no. You know, who, has anyone ever reached God's standard? Well, only one person, Jesus Christ, right. Has anyone tried to reach that standard? Oh, yeah, you know, and so then they start to draw these vertical lines up to God's holiness and each one may be a little longer than the other one. Saw one illustration where it said, well, you know, when it says there's none good, no, not one, there may be some people that are 50% good or 60% good or 90% good, and it kind of eked its way up, but nobody's 100% good. Jesus said, you have to be perfect as my Father's perfect. Nobody could do that. But that whole illustration is flawed. And the reason it's flawed is simply because it it basically relegates sin to something that we do. (laughs) Something that we do. That's what we think sin is. It's those bad things we do. Those bad thoughts. Those bad actions. Those bad words that come out of our mouth occasionally. That's sin. That's not God's plan. That's, that's sinfulness. I want to change the definition of sin from something that we do to something that we are. That's what we are. We are sin. We are fully corrupt. That's what Paul has been teaching us. It doesn't matter whether you're 50% or 80%. It's irrelevant. God's point is that there's no way you could ever meet my standard, ever. And that's what we've been looking at. We've looked at the, the question, are we better off? And we talked about the Christians there. We believe that he's speaking of the Christians because he already talked about the Jews and the Greeks and the pagans and now he introduces the idea, are we Christians any better off? No, we're not. And then he uses God's word in verse uh, 10 there. He says, as it is written, and he uses God's word to convict their hearts. If anything's going to convict our hearts, I hope it's God's word. And so he begins to share about the sinful heart. And there's three elements that we've been looking at, the moral nature. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. Righteousness can only come from God. There's only one way to get righteousness. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the second thing we looked at was the sinful mind. Not just the moral nature, none righteous, but the sinful mind. The idea that no one understands. And we looked at this last week. And you may say, well, I understand quite a bit about you. No, spiritually, in your own humanness, you cannot understand spiritual truth. That's what the Bible says. The sinful mind does not understand the things of the Spirit. Well, today we want to look at the third element of this sinful character that makes us up, this sinful heart, and it's the idea of the captive will. Because he says there in verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Okay, that's the the moral nature. No one understands, that's the sinful mind. And then we have the third indictment here, no one seeks For God, the captive will. And we spoke a little bit about this last week. But the idea that no one seeks for God. And we have to not 
just think about this in human terms. Because if we do, we're going to conclude that which is contrary to Paul's teaching. Because as you look around, I'm sure you have friends and family members and and different folks that are around that will say, oh, they're seeking for God. They're seeking for God. Look at all the different world religions. All these people, you know, they do pilgrimages. They do all these things. And they do them all because they're, they're seeking after God. Doesn't the Bible say that we seek God? Doesn't the Bible say that when man surely seeks Jesus that he'll find him? Can you say, he that seeks will find? Matthew 7, he that knocks, it'll be opened. Doesn't Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 say that God is a warder of them that diligently seek him? If you look at Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, look at verse 16. Acts 15, verse 16. He says, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it and the remnant of mankind that they may what? Seek the Lord. Well, wait, you just said nobody seeks the Lord. Doesn't the Bible say that men are to seek God? Isn't that contradictory to what we're saying here this morning? It's really not. It's not contradictory at all. Because the people involved in false religions are seeking something other than the true God, beloved. They're literally running from God to their own man-made system of belief. That's what happens. That's what religion is. It's man's attempt to reach out to a holy God. The people who seek God, who truly seek God, do not seek God on their own initiative. That's what this means. If left to themselves, they would seek other gods. They would, they would be blinded to the truth. If they seek the true God, it's because God has taken the initiative to seek them out. John six thirty seven. all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And why did they come to him? Verse 44 of the same chapter, John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, what? Draws him. You don't just wake up one day in your fallenness and say, Yeah, you know what? I think I'll start seeking God. I think maybe I'll, maybe I'll try Christianity for a while. No. Men do not seek God. As a matter of fact, Romans, when we went through Romans chapter 1, it says that they run from God. They seek to do their own thing. They seek their own way. Now, they may seek it in some fancy religion that looks nice, that looks timid, that looks... But if it's not biblical, it's not from the true God. They're seeking gods whom they've manufactured. They've turned their backs on God, on the true God, and they make God in their own image, as Romans chapter 1, verse 21 and 23 says, like corruptible men, birds and four-footed beasts and creepy things. See, so men who go through this religious path are not running to God. They're literally running away from God. And people who are truly seeking God are not doing it because of their own natural ability and their own natural initiative. They're doing it because the Father has begun to draw them. Because men naturally don't seek God. How could they? As we've been studying, they're what? They're dead. (laughs) Right? They're dead. A corpse doesn't seek anything. A corpse doesn't seek to be released from the casket. A corpse doesn't seek a glass of water. A corpse doesn't seek a fresh breath of air. It doesn't seek anything. It's dead. It's dead. It's blind. It's deaf. It's dumb. It's mute. It's, it's, it's just a corpse. And if you think that, well, that, that may go for everybody, but I'm, I'm a little different. No. That's why he says, no, not one. No one seeks for God. That's a very broad statement, but it's a very precise statement. I want you to understand this morning what it means to seek for God. 
just give you a little bit of information on what it means to seek for God. What does it mean to seek after God? Because when we think about that in our churches, we think of people who are seeking out what? Salvation, right? That's what we think. But to seek God is, is more than just seeking out God for salvation. Look at Psalm 16, back in Psalm 16. Because if we're going to say people don't seek God, then we have to understand what seeking God is, right? So Psalm 16, this is what David meant in Psalm 16, verse 8. Psalm 16, verse 8, David says, I have set the Lord always, what? Before me. I have set the Lord always before me. What does that mean? David's saying, look, I'm going to seek God. That means God is number one. God is always before me. Everything that I do, that I say, that I think, I run through the grid of God before. What does God say about it? What does God think about it? It means that your focus on everything, it's as if he put the Lord right in front of him and he said, you know what? Nothing gets to me unless it goes through God first. I have set the Lord always before me. Going, coming, God is the filter of everything. That's the idea. That's really what it means to seek the Lord. Seeking the Lord is very much what Jesus said in the New Testament when he said, seek first what? The kingdom of God and his what? Righteousness, right? To do that, to seek first, he didn't say seek it second or third or fourth. Okay, it's okay if you have other things in, in line. You know, I understand you're busy and you got jobs and you got families and you got everything. That's okay. You know, if those things come before you, that's okay. But, you know, no, it's not okay. And see, we live in a society today that we think it's okay for certain things to come between us and the Lord. I have set my family always before me. I mean, that's the kind of go-to thing when you want to get out of something or when, when you have priorities in your life. It's, well, family trumps everything, right? Well, no, not for the Christian. Sorry, bad choice. I mean, personally, if, if family came before everything, I love you, but I'd be in Hawaii right now with my grandkids, watching them grow up. Watching them mature. Watching what's going on in their lives. I wouldn't have to hear it secondhand because I'd be there with them. See, David says, I have set the Lord always before me. And I think we have to come to understand what that means. Because we're, we're, we're really missing it big time today in Christianity. You know, we listen to our Christian music. We listen, read our Christian books. We do all this stuff. And somehow we think that, well, that makes us more favorable in God's eyes when, in fact, it's just another thing on our plate that we probably have too big of a plate to begin with and we have too much stuff on it. So when it comes down to making priority decisions, well, should I give this time to the church or should I give this time? Well, you know, family, family, family. That's just the way it works. And family's important, don't get me wrong, but it's not more important than the Lord. See, those are radical words for our, our, our churches today to hear because you know, we got family life, we got all these people, it's family, 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 family. And I get it. You know, God has given those kids to you as a gift, and you want to do the best you can with them while you have them. And it's a priority. Dads, to instruct your children, moms, to, to, to do the, the stuff at home that you need to be doing so that the Lord could use you as parents. But don't you ever allow that to come in the way of serving the Lord or, or the Lord in general. Because David says, I've set the Lord always before me. What about your health? What about your health? Have you set that before you instead of the Lord? 
dear brother uh, Don <laughs> Castanelli, he's back in the, the hospital, his Crohn's disease, and he, uh, we've had the opportunity to pick him up and take him to the ER several times and stuff. And in our conversation, you know, I said, well, I hope you're getting better this next week. He goes, brother, I just want to be there on Sunday morning. I just want to hear the word of God. I just want to be with the brothers and sisters. He has a desire to be here. And I'm thinking, if I felt like you, man, I'd be home. I wouldn't, I mean, coming to church would probably maybe be the last thing on my mind. And yet that's not his attitude at all. He tells the doctor, man, if you can just get me better for Sunday, I'm good. And I thought, wow, what a desire. You know, even his health doesn't come before the Lord. We have to stop and we have to kind of reevaluate, don't we, what we're doing with our priorities. Look over at Philippians chapter 2 because this goes right to the heart of it and then we'll move on here. Philippians chapter 2. And trust me, this is a message for me just as much as it is for you, okay? I'm not, I'm not, uh, I don't think I'm preaching to the choir, uh, but uh, I'm preaching to myself, so I know I'm not in the choir. Um, Philippians chapter 2. You know, this kind of just puts it in perspective. Lest you sit there in your religiosity and say, well, that, that may be other people, but no, 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 no. I, 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 I always seek the Lord. I always... Well, look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 21. Verse 21. He's kind of letting him know that I don't have anybody here to, to genuinely concern for their welfare, he says in verse 20. And then he says this, and he's speaking of believers. He says, for they all, what? Seek God. Oh, no, it doesn't say that, does it? Whoops. It says they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Wow. What a statement. What's that mean? Everybody's after their own goodies, their own stuff, not the stuff that Jesus Christ wants them to be after. Their own agenda, their own schedule, their own priorities, not what the Lord has said, hey, here's what I want you to be about. See, this is where the radicalness of Christianity has kind of worn off over the years. You know, in Jesus' time, when the disciples and the apostles were teaching, the new church was given birth. I mean, when you came to Christ, if, if you were Gentile or Jew, basically, everybody disowned you, especially if you're Jewish. I mean, you were a social outcast if you came to Christ, if you followed the way, they used to call it. And there was a cost involved. You know, you think of some of these people over in Iraq and Syria who are believers, born-again believers. All they have to do is just say, hey, you know, all is great or whatever. I mean, you could rationalize. Well, God knows my heart. I don't really mean it, but I'm not going to watch my family get slaughtered. But they don't. They take a stand, even if it means death. They're not seeking their own interests, beloved. They're seeking those of Christ Jesus. That's what we have to be kind of brought back to that radical belief system that is what the church is all about. Well, you have been listening to Graceful Truth with our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse. And it's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal his grace to your hearts through the teaching of his word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area, and if not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade 5. If you'd like to encourage us here at the Graceful Truth Program, give us a call. You can call us at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City at 650 366 
800-259-9923. Questions, comments about the broadcast, maybe you'd like a copy on CD. Well, get a hold of us at 650-366-9923. We also rely upon our listeners as we continue the ministry. It is in part through your prayerful support that we're able to continue the ministry here on KFAX. So would you consider that as you contact us? Again, 650-366-9923. On the web, gracefultruth.org. And now, to close out our time together today, once again, our teacher and pastor. Here's Pastor Steve Converse. Thanks, Andy. I'd like to invite our listeners to our 2014 Fall Israel and Bible Prophecy Conference right here at Grace Bible Church, Redwood City. It will be held on November 7th, 8th, and 9th. That's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, November 7th, 8th, and 9th, right here at Grace Bible Church, Redwood City. This year, our conference speaker will be Dr. David Hawking. Dr. Hawking brings great insight and years of teaching experience when it comes to Bible prophecy, the nation of Israel, and how it all fits together into our current events. So please make sure you set aside November 7th, 8th, and 9th for our 2014 Fall Israel and Bible Prophecy Conference featuring Dr. David Hawking, right here at Grace Bible Church, Redwood City. Our conference kicks off at 7 p.m. on Friday, November 7th. The conference is free, and there are flyers that are available for download at gracebibleonline.org. We hope to see you there. Thank you, Steve. And again, friend, we'd love to hear from you. So call us today, 650-366-9923, or write to us, 2225 Euclid Avenue, Redwood City, 94061 is our zip code. Until next time, God bless. God bless.